This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. It's the moment we'd all been waiting for, and it finally happened today. Given the situation... I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. Liz Truss, the country's second Prime Minister this year, has resigned after just 45 days in office. We've agreed that there will be a leadership election to be completed within the next week. Sir Graham Brady has confirmed that there will be a new leader of the Conservative Party by Friday 28th of October. But in the middle of an economic crisis, can the Conservative Party find a leader that will unify the party and be accepted by the country? I'm Gabby Hinsliff in for John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today is The Guardian's political editor, Pippa Krirath. Pippa, thanks so much for joining us on a really busy day. Hello. Thanks for having me. Here I am in my office in Westminster and the government's fallen apart around me. Fortunately, however, you're still there. The Prime Minister, however, has resigned. Liz Truss today announced her position was no longer tenable after a chaotic seven days, which saw her sack her Chancellor and her Home Secretary U-turn on her flagship economic policy and lose the confidence of her MPs. I came into office at a time of great economic and international instability. Families and businesses were worried about how to pay their bills. Putin's illegal war in Ukraine threatens the security of our whole continent. And our country has been held back for too long by low economic growth. I was elected by the Conservative Party with a mandate to change this. We delivered on energy bills, and on cutting national insurance. And we set out a vision for a low-tax, high-growth economy that would take advantage of the freedoms of Brexit. I recognise, though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. Just to sit back for a minute and reflect on this, I mean, it does feel like one of the most surreal weeks I think I've ever experienced. Pippa, is that, is that your feeling? What's it felt like down there today? I definitely agree with that. I mean, we've got to this sort of position where we become immune, really, to this, this sort of scale of political drama because there's been so much of it over the last few years. Politics, British politics has been a very 
tumultuous place. And particularly in the last six months with the demise of Boris Johnson and in the Tory leadership contest, we've got used to a lot of drama in our lives. And But yet, despite that, I think what we've seen this week with going back to last Friday onwards, really, with the resignation or the sacking of, of Kwasi Kwarteng, Truss's Chancellor, the sacking of her Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, and a real sort of chaos unleashed on the Tory party in votes and in Parliament, as Number 10 is really struggling, or Liz Truss specifically was struggling to, to maintain control of her party, it's, it feels like, I'm not sure we've ever seen anything quite like it. I mean, there were some moments during the Brexit wars of 2019 where it got pretty close, but the last few days have been pretty staggering. It's the speed of it as much as anything else, the speed with which it feels like it's it's all fallen apart, you know, and, and the way in which it feels like kind of years have been telescoped into days. I mean, I already feel like Kwasi Kwarteng's resignation was something that happened last year, and actually it was kind of last Friday. You know, you get this sense of everything on hyperspeed. The Labour MP said to me this week, I'm kind of sick of living in unprecedented times. It'd be quite nice to have some like precedented ones where you felt like you knew what was. Well, that's their hope, of course, because they, they they see Keir Starmer as being sort of you know the off, his off big offer to the British public is that he's stable and steady and dare I say it a bit boring. And actually, we could all do with some boredom in our lives at the moment. The actual, I mean, the actual resignation speech was is very short. Um, it was unlike. I mean, it, it wasn't like Theresa May who was very tearful. It wasn't like Boris Johnson who was sort of clearly angry kind of felt to me quite unrepentant really it was just you know well especially when she started talking about her mandate you know like obviously the work must carry on without me it was very perfunctory wasn't it it was sort of business businessman like or businesswoman like 203 words I think in total she came out said the absolute bare minimum of what she needed to do turned on a heel and went back in through that famous black door and I think this is shouldn't really been a surprise because frankly every public statement speech interview Liz Truss has done that I mean they're clearly not her forte she is a bit wooden she lacks that sort of emotional connectivity that so many other politicians have that you really need to be able to sort of persuade people that what you're saying you really mean and I was really struck that by that on the the interview she did with the BBC on was it Monday night on losing track where she apologised for the first time, said she was sorry for the impact that her mistakes had, uh, the impact her mistakes had had. And she said the same again at Prime Minister's Question Time on Wednesday. And it didn't sound like she meant it. So I think there's probably very little contrition there. I suspect she feels she's been very badly done by, that she didn't get the support she needed, that her plan for a radical economic reform and growth was the right one. Maybe she'd conceded it was the wrong time. But right to the end, despite the apologies, she still maintained that it was her desire to push ahead with this growth strategy when quite clearly the country, the economy, the markets, the people required stability. And more than her desire as well, when she started, when she did talk about her her mandate in that way, although she's obviously never had a mandate from actual voters, but it, it felt to me like a very coded way, you know, warning of saying, this is what the membership wanted. This is what we're supposed to be delivering. Whoever succeeds me is supposed to keep on delivering this. Whereas the whole point of what, what MPs have just done is to absolutely repudiate what, you know, say never again are we doing trustonomics, you know, whoever follows us, this isn't this isn't the path we go down. And she doesn't seem to accept that. I almost wondered as if she sounded almost as if she was expecting to be offered a job by the whoever comes in next. You know, yeah. I just think <laughs> Good luck to them if they decide to do that. <laughs> 
I do think it is interesting though, isn't it? Because, you know, we've been through, as we've said, some really turbulent times politically in the last few years. We've had Brexit, we've had the pandemic, which, I mean, talking about unprecedented, that really was for this country. Uh, we've got war on the fringes of Europe in Ukraine, uh, and, we were, and we were in the middle of a cost of living crisis. So there's some really tough challenges and nobody's suggesting that it wasn't a really difficult heart, a difficult hand that she was dealt. I think what we are, what everybody has concluded is, particularly her Tory MPs, was that it was a difficult hand, but she played it very, very badly. Um, and, you know, the, all, the, all the language from her about a mandate just really falls flat because, as you rightly identify, it was a mandate from Conservative Party members, not the electorate. And I think the vast majority of people in the country were looking at the government right now and thinking, God, it's the third prime minister. Isn't it time for an election? At what point do we get a look in? Well, we'll come back to that in a minute. But I just want to go back first uh, deep into history, i.e. 24 hours ago, when um, when all of this sort of first sort of started to fall apart and you got the sense of the, the wheels coming off. So on Wednesday afternoon, we had what should have been really a, a fairly routine piece of parliamentary mischief by the Labour Party Um over fracking um, and you know a motion to ban fracking, which was was actually obviously originally the Tory manifesto position, but but binned recently by this trust. Can you explain how quite they managed to mess that up so badly that it ended up with the chief whip allegedly resigning, then on resigning, possibly who knows now. It was very poor management, wasn't it? I mean, ultimately, these opposition day debates are a fairly common feature of parliamentary life. And they're an opportunity for uh, for the opposition to choose a subject that it wants uh, to debate and to put the government, the Tory MPs in this case, in an awkward position. So we've seen them on free school meals, for example, last year, um, where Tory MPs abstained and then spent the next few months facing criticism from Labour that they had voted against. Um, increasing free school meals. Um, the standard government response to these things is to is to ignore them, to abstain. But the difference this time round is that uh, Labour used a, a clever tactic, which has only been used a couple of times before, which is to make the vote about granting time uh, on the order paper. So they had the opportunity to to a pathway, if you like, to legislation. So the vote was about Labour taking control of the order paper and having a, what would be a binding vote. On fracking. Now, the only time, other time this is concerned, this has happened in recent history, is that famous day, talking about dramatic days, um, back in 2019 at the height of Bre- the Brexit wars, when Oliver Letwin and his crew took hold of the order paper and pushed through votes to make sure that we wouldn't have a no deal Brexit. 21 Tory MPs were then, then sacked, they lost the Tory whip. Um, the rest is history. But it's that sort of level of, of um, rarity in terms of that device being used. So the government was in a really tricky position. They had two choices. They could either ignore, as usual, the opposition day debate, pretend it wasn't happening, get their MPs to abstain, deal with sort of minor political political uh, upset as a result of it. But, you know, these things happen Move all the time. On, yeah. Or... They could, uh, or because it was, the, the big problem was that actually it allowed an opportunity for Labour to legislate. So because of that, they felt that they had to make it a, a three-line whip. They had to encourage the MPs to vote it down because that was kind of like a red line. You can't suddenly hand over the order paper to the opposition. That would undermine the government's authority even more than it had been already undermined. So they were kind of like stuck between a rock and a hard place between these two choices. They opted to make a three-line whip. More than that, they opted to make a confidence vote in the whole government and then with this ridiculous toing and froing at the last minute, where a minister announced, apparently because of miscommunication, number 10, announced in the Commons that it wasn't going to be a confidence vote. And then you had the likes of Therese Coffey and Jacob Rees-Mogg 
apparently physically manhandling MPs to get them to vote the right way. I mean, it was just complete chaos. So you have these extraordinary scenes where nobody knows whether or not it's a confidence vote, whether or not they should vote for it. As you say, lots of um, allegations of pushing and shoving, Wendy Morton supposedly resigning in the middle of it and then unresigning. I can't even say what the deputy um, chief is <laughs> <laughs> alleged to have you said. Just, but you, mean, you need a few asterisks in there. I think, yeah, yeah. A beep, just a beep leave, or two. leave that to your ripe imaginations, Guardian listeners. But, um, and this, of course, is against, you know, a backdrop of what else is going on. So, well, the Home Secretary, you know, essentially being fired over what looks like, I mean, I'm not saying that it's not a serious potential breach of security to send emails from your mobile phone when you're the Home Secretary, but it's the kind of thing that would have been forgiven under previous administrations, you think? I think, think two and... things. And I think that, yes, you can see that situation, you can see a situation where that would have been forgiven in other circumstances. But there was a second element to it, which is that the information that she shared was about uh, immigration policy and specifically the impact of immigration policy potentially on growth forecasts, uh, which are a key part of the the budget and therefore market sensitive. So there was that sort of double element and that's that's the reason that number 10 gave for her being sacked. However, people in number 10 do admit that it was convenient timing. I mean, Suella Braverman has not been a help, very helpful to Liz Truss or had not been very helpful to Liz Truss during the course of her premiership, not least by suggesting that net migration should be in the tens of thousands when Truss wanted to be able to have to control it, but to be able to have the freedom to increase skilled migration in order to be able to boost growth. So there was a big, apparently a big shouting match between the two of them over that. And also somebody else told me that Jeremy Hunt, um, obviously the new Chancellor, an extremely powerful man now, had decided that he didn't want to be sitting in the cabinet, which had people that he regarded as clowns, and that there was a few people sitting around the table, but he thought actually weren't up to the job. Now, they deny that. They say that he's not had a role, any role in personnel. But it all kind of fits with this picture of Truss having to relinquish control over pretty much every aspect of her government. There was interesting, with the way it was put to me as well was, there's a direct conflict between economic policy now and Suella Bretman's position. I mean, the, the, one of the sort of bits of the trust growth plan that you might have wanted to keep was was the idea she was advancing that, you know, they've overdone it on immigration controls, that, you know, you should have a slightly more relaxed economic policy that's starting to harm economic growth. You know, and she had publicly contradicted that, just as she'd publicly contradicted tax cuts, just as she'd publicly suggested there was some kind of Remainer coup going on. And I've been looking at her for the last two weeks thinking, thinking I don't, I can't quite understand how she's still you know, you can't continue to be Home Secretary and openly disagree with your your Prime Minister all the time. Um, and it, it turns out that, that that's true. But in this case, perhaps um, you can't continue to be Prime Minister either. Mm. But um, <laughs> anyway, so you, you move on to, to Grant Chaps is Home Secretary for what, possibly a day? Or if it, you know, or it depends well, if he's, he's retained by one of these two until there's a new one, possibly a week then. Do you think that was, do you think the fracking vote was the final straw what what tipped things over because originally it seemed as if the hunt plan was to sort of to keep the prime minister there until at least october the 31st to have this stability to not have a sort of wildly unpredictable political you know leadership contest that where the markets would sort of panic again and it felt as if something was running out of his control after that or running out of government. yeah and some of truss's allies not just hunt but some of truss's allies had said that that was the plan that they wanted to try and keep her in place to calm things down until the the, the next fiscal statement happened and then hopefully from their perspective she would be able to buy herself a little bit more time with that things would stabilize a little bit i think the problem came with all these different things happening yesterday and there was also stuff about um one of her closest aides being suspended uh, her performance at Prime Minister Question Time, there's all these different elements. Mm. And you've had all these Tory MPs saying, 
well, for weeks really, privately, but increasing in increasing numbers publicly, the trust wasn't up to the job. And I think what happened at the end of yesterday was that there was a, a recognition among a, a significant number of those Tory MPs that she was out of control and therefore the party was out of control, therefore the country was. And that actually that meant that there was da more danger of damage being done both to the party's electoral prospects, but also much more importantly to the economy by keeping her in post for the next 10 days than there was by getting rid of her and potentially having you know, an unsettling week or so when they choose a new prime minister, um, but meaning that she was out of the picture. So that, I think, was the calculation that was made last night. It was a tipping point for people that they thought this chaos can't continue. It's actually worse to keep her in post. At what point did you get the feeling that she was definitely, definitely going? Did you get an early hint for the, the 1.30? Well, we've been we've been umming and ahhing about it all really for the last twenty four hours. Um, I think my instinct was that was because we'd heard this so much from it from ministers and MPs that they would try and cling on until uh, the end of the week. But I think overnight it became clear that she was in a very difficult position. Uh, I first heard from Number Ten sources about half an hour before they were going to make a statement that one was coming. We weren't a hundred percent clear what that statement was going to say we assumed it was that she was going to stand down but you know got to be careful about these things don't want to get it wrong um so we wrote a quite careful story at that point saying she was going to make a statement and it was prompting further speculation that she was about to quit um and then lo and behold you know as is as with the whole trust premiership everything was truncated before we knew it there there were the handymen from number 10 wheeling out the the smart wooden new lectern that we last saw when she addressed the country after the queen died but this time, just six short weeks later, to announce her resignation. Yeah, talking of truncated, I think that her premiership lasted less time than the leadership elections, which is pretty... Oh, wow, that's a fact, isn't it? <laughs> pretty rough. She's also, the, she's also the shortest serving ever British prime minister. It's not exactly. really a great athlete. Anyway, this, this new leadership election is going to last a week. So that's the, the record for the next prime minister to be, I guess. Um, and it looks now as if... Um, so we should have a new... Prime Minister by um, Friday the 28th of October. So Graham Brady was out this afternoon giving a bit more detail about, about how it's going to work and it looks as if there's going to be a pretty high threshold um, of nominations to join the race. I mean, it, that looks like an attempt to weed out all the sort of no-hopers letting yeah. it be known they're taking soundings. It's, it's very significant, actually, that the threshold is that high. It's, you know, quite clear that they don't want as broader field as they had uh, during the last leadership contest uh, when I think sort of eight or nine MPs went for it for the first time. But So it's 100 nominations now, isn't it? That's the, you, you so need 100, the nomination threshold mm. to run in the first place is, is 100 and they've got to 2pm on Monday to announce, to declare that they've got those nominations. And it could be the case that, as you say, they want to wrap it up by Friday, but it could be the case that if only one candidate at that point has 100, then that candidate's becomes the next prime minister so it could wrap up very very quickly and the other thing that Graham Brady and the Tory party chair um, Jake Berry said is that if MPs can't agree on one unity candidate and pick two then there will be the will the vote will go to members there'll be very quick online members vote so that they would get a say and my feeling very much is like that, but we, do we know how binding that's going to be like a snap online poll of well, it would be it would be absolutely binding, and they claim that the sort of security concerns that have been expressed about 
how safe that would be yeah, exactly. from foreign interference yeah. and stuff or, or, or misguided and that they that the system is is very secure um, but of course we saw what happened during the Tory leadership contest when they initially the first one when they initially suggested members would be able to get an online vote at the end to change their position or to lodge their position for the first time and they and they withdrew that because of security concerns but the threshold thing Gabby I think is is also interesting because of course the minute Truss resigned, focus shifted forward as to who was going to take over. And one of those names doing the round was inevitably Boris Johnson, who friends have been saying for weeks now that he wanted, uh, that he felt that his premiership had been you know, cut off at the knees, that he didn't think he'd done uh, everything he wanted to do and that he was keen for a comeback. And it might have happened sooner than, he, than he'd expected, but he's on holiday in the Caribbean at the moment. And we're hearing that he was heading for the airport to get a a flight straight back. But there's hardly anybody that we've spoken to at Westminster that thinks that Boris Johnson would be able to get to hit that threshold of 100 MPs. That is probably somewhere between 40 and 60 at best, which means that he would have to rethink and not throw his hat into the ring after all, which a lot of MPs who regard him as very divisive, he's still got the party gate inquiry hanging over him, think would be, you know, is a relief. It's probably a moment to play um, a clip from Charles Walker, the Tory MP who went viral this week um, with uh, a warning really to, to Tory MPs who use their vote um, for their own personal advancement in the last leadership contest. I'm livid and you know, I really shouldn't say this, but I hope all those people that put Liz Truss in number 10, I hope it was worth it. I hope it was worth it for the ministerial red box. I hope it was worth it to sit around the cabinet table because the damage they have done to our party is extraordinary. I'm sorry, it's very difficult to convey. You look just furious about this. I am, I am. I've had enough. I've had enough of talentless people um, putting their tick in the right box, not because it's in the national interest, but because it's in their own personal interest to achieve ministerial position. So we're, we're back really to that, aren't we, Pippa? Sort of relying on Conservative MPs to cast a vote in the national interest. Yeah, here we are again. And the opposition, Labour, Lib Dems and the SNP, have all called for a general election instead, um, saying that we're now so far removed from the electoral mandate that was won by the Conservatives in 2019, 2pm 2 is on, that really they need their own fresh mandate. The risk at the moment is continuing with this chaos, not having a stable Labour government. So that's why there should be a general election. We can't just allow the Tory party to keep putting up the next candidate in the middle of this chaos. There is a choice. There's a Labour party that's capable of you know, stabilising the economy, has a clear plan, um, and the public entitled to choose between that stable Labour government and this utter chaos of the Conservatives. I think, though, that that's still less likely to happen imminently than it is likely, because the Tories are still about 30 points behind Labour in the polls. And while that might not actually be replicated at a general election, even a lead of about 15 percent in the polls would deliver a Labour a healthy majority. And so Conservative MPs would be looking at themselves out of power, potentially for generation, and many of them losing their seats. And as, as one MP said, or as many MPs say, there's nothing as X as an ex-MP in terms of their own employment prospects. So I think from a Tory perspective, there's, there would be huge reluctance to give in to those demands for a general election. Labour people are kind of split on it. Um, you, there's a, one group of Labour MPs that think they 
what they want to do is to take over now as soon as possible because the damage that could be done to the economy in the next two years is so immense that they want at least to be able to have a chance to sort of shape things and get out of this economic situation in their own way. And there are those who think that there are global factors at play, which mean that the economic crisis is likely to continue for a good couple of years. And actually having someone like Hunt in that is going to try and sort of, you know, balance the books a bit means that they could potentially be taking over a healthy economy in two years time, albeit probably still facing some tough choices. So although they're publicly calling for an election, there are some that think actually we wouldn't mind waiting until 2024 anyway. So I don't think one is imminent. We should quickly um, just say who's definitely not running. Uh, Jeremy Hunt has ruled himself out of the running, although it doesn't often necessarily stop him remaining as Chancellor, whoever it ends up being. Michael Gove said he wouldn't run. Uh, James Cleverly, the Foreign Secretary, said he wouldn't. And Tom Tugendhat, who ran last time, wouldn't run either. There is some speculation um, about a sort of... I mean, this is what Tory MPs were kind of trying to agree um, in the last few days, but didn't didn't get there within time, but of some kind of triumvirate or whatever the some equivalent of that is, I can't remember. Um, but where, you know, you have a combination of Rishi Sunak, Penny Mordaunt, Gove, and sort of whoever, that, that sort of non-Boris Johnson, vaguely progressive, vaguely sort of um, centrist sort of conglomeration that comes together and stops vote, taking votes off each other. Do you think that's a goer? I mean, obviously he hasn't been a goer for the last few days. And if so, who do you think emerges at the, the head of it? Because that seems to be the the question. Someone would have to stand back and, and let, you know, and that's the problem, is that none of them want to stand back. Those that think that they could make it to you know, the top two or three. The, the obvious front runner is Rishi Sunak because he came first amongst Tory MPs last time. But there is a sort of a, a chunk of Boris Johnson supporting MPs, those 40 to 60, that absolutely would do everything in their power to stop him. And there are others in the party as well that wouldn't back him necessarily. But I think given that he got over 100 at the final round of the MPs contest, we could expect that. Certainly we'll expect him to make the, the ballot. Then it comes into who comes into second place. Now, Penny Mordaunt came third behind Liz Truss just by a handful of votes um, in, the, in, the, in the last leadership. And the expectation is that she would go through, faced with the choice between Rishi Sunak and um, Penny Mordaunt. It'd be interesting to see what members hmm. would do in that online poll. Last time, the, the suggestion was that Penny Mordaunt would Penny win amongst the yeah. members. Whether that's still the case, having been through the contest once and given the economic situation we're now in, I have to wait and see. But it certainly feels like it's between the two of them. Now, whether one or other of them is prepared to stand back, I doubt very much. It might reach the point that uh, you know you get a first round, a first round of voting amongst MPs, and then it becomes clear that one of them is the front runner, and they agree to do a deal. And so, for example, Rishi Sunak takes <coughs> takes over it. At number 10, keeps Jeremy Hunt as his chancellor because I think there is a real sort of requirement for stability that they all recognise and that Penny Mordaunt gets pretty much any other job she wants, whether that's home or foreign or something else entirely, deputy prime minister even. That would seem to be where sort of the centrist MPs are, are, are trying to head towards. But, you know, there's a long way to go and a lot of a lot of MPs to win over to get there. Talking of the economic situation we're in, I suppose the final question is, what is Liz Truss's legacy? If that doesn't sound like a mad thing to say of someone who's been there for for all of um, six weeks. I mean, she was outlasted by a lettuce, but that's probably not the <laughs> legacy she wanted. I'm not sure it's a very positive legacy, really. I think it's a, it's a sort of an extra black hole in the British economy, in the British public finances of you know anywhere between 10 and 20 billion pounds that will now be have to have to be filled because of a disastrous mini budget. It's an extra 
maybe 1%, 2% on people's mortgage interest rates. But from a po political perspective, it is the end of any hopes or dreams that the libertarian free market right may have had for imposing their form of ideology on British politics. That is dead for a generation. What we're going to see is much more of the status quo, the much maligned tre treasury orthodoxy, maligned by this trust, I should say, and a much more sort of like conventional, potentially stable type of politics, because that's what the public's asking for. And after this failed experiment of trustonomics, I think that's what they'll get. And 20 years of economic liberalists saying, oh, but communism was never properly tried. If only she timed the budget yeah. differently. If only she, just the presentation was off, then we'd be fine. <laughs> Anyway, listen, I need to let you go because you've got masses to do tonight. But um, thank you so much for your time, Pippa. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want more analysis on this extraordinary week in British politics, tune into our sister podcast, Today in Focus. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby, music by Axel Coutier. The executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice. New research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.